The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hi, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. This is Joey Bushnell. Today's special guest is an incredible copywriter. To many, he's the best in the world right now, John Carlton. Go to john-carlton.com to find out more. John, thank you very much for coming on the show. Not a problem, Joey. Glad to, glad to uh, be here. John, how did you get into copywriting? That's one of my... Favorite stories, and it's part of the myth that I brought up about myself. I think all of us invent our own myths as we go. When when you uh, attain any success in any kind of industry, you you get asked questions like, "How did you get started?" That's certainly what I asked other um, successful business people when I was coming up through the ranks, and I noticed that they told me pretty much pat stories about what happened. And and it, it was very interesting to me how many of the people came from weird directions to get to the point of success. And I realized that my 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 path was a long process of failure. Um, which which is which was good. I needed to get a lot of failure out of the way. And I think a lot of writers out there, if they haven't met success yet, um, you know, might be heartened by, by, by hearing that you can still make it. You do have to put your nose to the grindstone and get going, but it's okay. I started literally having this revelation. I was sleeping on a friend's couch, living out of my car. I had no home. I had no job. I'd lost my girlfriend. I'd lost everything. And I was in San Diego with, with a friend far away from, uh, where I had started out and, uh, just had this revelation that finally it was going to be up to me to get my life together if that was going to happen. And I started buckling down. And uh, to that point, and I was 32 years old, Joey. So I had spent my 20s being a slacker, uh, partying, uh, kind of taking the professional business world not very seriously. And I got fired from every single job I'd had uh, with good reason. And uh, through a convoluted process. I was in, actually in Silicon Valley in California working in an art department. I have some basic uh, uh, skills. Uh, it's called the commercial art skills, which means I was helping to put magazines together. I wasn't doing the writing. I was doing the art part. And I realized that uh, writers were actually behind the words that were appearing. And, and I, I kind of it didn't surprise me, but it astonished me that I'd never put two and two together, that somebody was sitting down and writing the words that appeared in the magazines, in the catalogs, in the advertisements that I was dealing with. And so I, I felt like that was something I could do. I, I think if, if anybody out there listen, who's listening is, is a writer or has, or has what we call writer's blood in you, then the ideal job involves some point of you and a blank piece of paper or a blank monitor screen with, you know, a word, you know, a word page up and, and it's you and the keyboard or you and the, and the pencil and the paper. Then if, if that idea of actually making that work appeals to you, then there are a number of jobs out there that you can take uh, as as a writer or 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 forge or create. 
from writing articles to writing novels to um, being what's called a tech writer, which would be writing manuals for software and things like that, or writing the ads that go into copy. That was the most lucrative part of the profession, and I felt, well, if I'm going to like dedicate myself to this, let's just go where the money is right now because I was broke, and I was kind of motivated to do that. So I was kind of a writer, but not really. I'd never published anything. Just it, it, it was not daunted by the idea of sitting down and facing a blank page and started essentially from there. And, and, and I'd never met a copywriter uh, certainly never met a freelance copywriter, which is a subdivision of that. Mm-hmm. And just kind of invented it as I went along. And it turned out it was a needed job in the advertising world. And uh, I partially lucked out, but mostly it was just kind of settling down and putting business before pleasure and finally finally starting to carve out a place for myself in the uh, business world. Did it come naturally, John, or was there a bit of a learning curve involved for you? Not a bit of it came naturally. Uh, when I say I had some writing chops, I was merely comfortable with, with writing. I think, I, I think a large majority of people don't like to write. And I think that's, uh, kind of is a natural division in the copywriter world that, that if you don't like to write, maybe you probably, you shouldn't be a copywriter. However, there are a number of successful marketers who do their own copy who hate writing, hate that process. Mm-hmm. And as they can, they start hiring professional writers. But until that point, they, they take care of it. So a lot of these guys come through my world and they just need to know how to write. So A, they can get the initial stuff out. And then once the money starts flowing in, they can hire a writer and know what to tell him, what to expect from him, from him and how to edit if, if, if they need to. So you don't need to be a writer, but you need to be interested in the process of writing, of taking essentially nothing and creating ideas and uh, sales paths and and storytelling and all of these these kind of things together. So I was kind of a storyteller. I come from a, a family of storytellers. And I enjoyed stories. I liked reading and I had written a bit. I wasn't I wasn't freaked out about writing. So that that was kind of the basic stuff I brought to the table. Nothing more than that. Okay, so now that you're a very accomplished copywriter, when you sit down to write copy, how do you get into the right frame of mind? Well, it's been automatic for a couple of decades. I've been doing this for 30 years. Uh, but early on, I did something called stocking the desk. That's that's my term. I just figured I'd walk in, I'd sit down, I'd look. And this is where, you know, this is where you – you you have your come to Jesus meeting with with yourself. You're either going to sit down and write if if you need to write, or you're going to find all the excuses or, or follow up all the excuses to not write. There are thousands of reasons not to sit down and write at any given time, especially if you work for yourself, you're working at home, if you're uh, working on your own time frame. There there are a lot of distractions, so you have to get into that frame where you you look at the desk and you say, "I'm going to do it." I equate it to uh, a metaphor of life as a swimming pool. And a lot of people are in the pool, splashing around, they're having fun. But a lot of people who can't get started, they're, they're walking along the edge of the pool and they're thinking, you know, well, is, is it, is it cold? You know, is it deep on this end? I mean, is there a lot of chlorine? I, you know, I, I don't like any water up my nose. And they do everything to avoid jumping in. And it's kind of like just step up, 
jump in, get wet, get over that, that initial shock, and now you're swimming and you got to swim, you got to focus and pay attention on that. So it's, it's the same with writing. You sit, I actually used to put on what I called writing clothes, and that helped. Uh, it can be as much, it can be as simple as a hat. You have a writing hat. When you put it on, you are now the writer. You're going to sit down, you're going to do nothing else. I had to have writing clothes, Joy, because I was susceptible to all kinds of, uh, all kinds of distractions. I was living at the beach. There were a lot, you know, and I had a history of being kind of a partier. So I had to put on sweats. And to this day, I, I still wear the same uniform. I put on sweats and a, uh, torn t-shirt and uh, I don't comb my hair and I sit down and I am but I, I have a home office so I walk you know 15 feet to my desk but you know I can't go outside in that I mean I've got to write if, if I'm going to leave the house to go do something or go do something else or I'm going to meet people I have to literally change and clean up so that kind of knocks out a lot of that stuff so you know anything that works for you that puts you into the frame is fine but basically I a lot of writers have told me they've been helped by that jumping in the pool metaphor it's the same as the ocean yes it's going to be cold yes it's going to be a shock to the system yes you know you know there's you, you have to just want to do it but you just got to do it and sometimes you just got to force yourself to take the plunge so to speak yeah, I, I totally agree. I've tried getting into the ocean lots of times slowly and it's just a very painful process. So it's much better to just dunk your head under the water and get in there. So John, moving on, do you handwrite or type your copy? Um, I uh, 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 do both. Mostly I type. I uh, became conversant with the typewriter. I actually started out so long ago, I was using a uh, uh, a IBM Selectric, a used IBM Selectric that I, that I wrote. Uh, it had a sticky F key. I mean, I had to go through, you know, putting on new uh, uh, ribbons, all the stuff that you guys have never even had to deal with, you you younger guys. Um, but uh, I got conversant with the typewriter, and I reached a point where the voice in my head translated directly through my fingers to the keyboard to the page. So it didn't matter when I went when I started using uh, Word for Mac and and uh, working online. It was it was the same thing. However, I also write a lot of notes to myself. I keep a notepad next to my bed in the in the living room. Uh, I carry one with me a lot, so I'm scribbling notes all the time. I also use my uh, smartphone, uh, use the recording feature, and I talk into it, and then I transcribe it later. And when I do headlines and stuff, often I may type out a few headlines, then I'll print out the page, and then I start with the pencil, and I start writing and editing and doing this stuff. So there's a cool phrase that actually comes not from advertising but from the fiction writers that good writing is rewriting. And what you do is you slam out a draft and you spend – 10% of your total time slamming out the first draft, 90% of your time re, reworking that by rewriting, by going back and doing that. And, and so what you've got is a typewritten draft. You go in with the pen or the pencil and you start reworking it, you know, crossing out stuff. Don't scribble it out. Could just cross out stuff, and I do it, so that the page kind of looks like a, a mind map. If you've ever seen that, so there's lots of lines out here, a big circle, and you know, note to yourself, you know, research this line, make sure it's true, change this line. Here, here's four other words that might work better here, things like that. So it looks like a, uh, you know, you dumped a. Uh, 
uh, pot of ink onto the page, but that's the way a lot of writers work. It's a, it's a, every, everything you write, every page you write is a work in progress until you hit that final, you know, final edit and you either send it off or you make a, you know, a, a, you print it out and hand it to the client or you send off a PDF or whatever. John, how do we develop a USP, also known as a unique selling proposition? What is that all about and how do you come up with one? When I started out, I read every copyrighted book I could find. I actually took a speed reading course, ran down to the uh, Torrance Municipal Library in Southern California and read everything in the Dewey Decimal System from, I think, 600 to 800, which included sales, marketing, business, writing, sales writing, all this kind of stuff. So I came across every single possible book I could find, and I didn't read every single one, but I through speed reading, I, I found the good ones, read all those, so I, I, I believe USP was originally coined by Rosser Rees back in the 50s, and he was talking about uh, selling commodities. It's kind of, if you guys have seen Mad Men on, on, uh, on AMC, the show about the early 60s, they, they talk about that, the USP, the unique selling proposition, which actually referred to the very short ads that were prominent back then. So he was talking about slogans. I changed it for the long copy direct response kind of stuff that I do. By direct response, I mean that in the ad, at the end of the ad, I ask for a response, some kind of action, call, fill this out, buy this now, click this link, whatever. So that's different than the vast amount of advertising you will see on TV or in a lot of magazines where they're just saying stuff like buy, buy this car or, uh, you know, here's, here, here's what we do. Aren't, aren't we a wonderful company? So a direct response, very different than the, than the advertising most people are used to. So I changed USP to uniquely position yourself in order to sell. And by, by that, I mean unique means compared to your competition, to the market, and the expectations of that market or your prospect. What are they expecting from, from a product or a service in that market? What are your competitors doing? How are they pricing it? What are you up against? And uh, what the general market, what the history of the market? So you got to do some research, and you find this out. You know, how can you find a unique position in the, that you're either cheaper, you're more expensive, you offer more, you offer less, but it's more targeted, you're a regular guy opposed to the corporate entities out there, whatever you can do to, to uniquely position yourself. However, that uniqueness has to be positioned against the market, the competition, the uh, expectations of the prospect in a way so you can sell. So in other words, going out and just saying you're cheaper there, because say everybody's charging $100 for whatever typical product or, or for similar stuff that you're offering, either service or product. They're charging $100. You can come out and say, I'm only charging 5 bucks. That would be very unique. However, it might also be unbelievable and you may not be able to sell it. You can also uh, come out with just $95, and that may be unique enough, just enough of a shock. It might be. This depends on the market, that that's good enough. More likely, you may have to go, we're cheaper, but we, you know, we're cheaper because of this. You have to explain it. However, you might also go in there and say, look, most people charge $200 or $100 for this thing. We are $200 and here's why. So you're unique. You explain why. And the more you fit what the people need. So a lot of, a lot of people may distrust the competition or they may be so used to bad quality out there that you can say, ours is higher quality. It costs more, but here's why it makes more sense. It's going to give you more, blah, blah, blah. So you, so you position yourself uniquely in the market with an eye on selling, not with an eye on just being unique and an eye on selling. Very, very important. If you don't have that, the ad has a much less 
uh, chance of surviving. How do you come up with a big promise for your copy that doesn't sound overhyped and unbelievable, but at the same time, it's not a weak promise either that's a bit boring or not very attractive? How do you tread that fine line? Well, I call it the hook, and a lot of it has to do with storytelling and research, and actually I have had unbelievable stuff. You don't need to use hype. Um, some, in some markets, they're used to hype, but I think the perception of hype is wildly overblown. You have to step forward at some point in the ad and say, look, I got the goods. I'm the guy. I've just proven you. You can trust me. I have this stuff. You need it. You should do it right now. And then you've got to push them off the fence. A rookie writer can get somebody interested in a product to the point where the person says, yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty good product. And I think someday down, down the line when I have some more money, I may just give this a second look and buy it. That's getting him up on the fence. He agrees it's a good product, but he hasn't bought yet. The professional said to knock him off the fence to buy. And sometimes you got to just be, look, what is wrong with you? This is the product you need. This is what you, this is what you've been asking for. Your life is in turmoil right now. Uh, this is the, the, what you need to solve your problems and in the turmoil you need to do, to do this now. You need to push. You need to be able to do it, but you got to be able to do it in a way that doesn't turn him off, but instead kind of is in that conversation and say, cause he's battling this this decision to buy that can be perceived as hype only because you're not you, you're actually selling one of the things i used to do when, when i'd speak at uh, international uh, seminars joy is, is i would stand up on stage and i'd say how many people here want to sell without selling and half the room would raise their hands and there's a lot of marketers out there marketing so-called sales systems that mean you don't have to sell what what they're talking about is people don't want to be put in the uncomfortable position of asking someone to make a choice right now, take out their wallet, and give you money. It's very uncomfortable for a lot of people to do that. You have to get over that. And from the stage, I tell those people who raise their hands, grow up. You're in business. You have to use classic salesmanship techniques, even if they make you feel uncomfortable. But you don't need to get into the hype. Yeah. So so hype, hype is a very sensitive word. You still have to sell. So – the way to find that sweet spot for the big promise, big promise, by the way, goes back to those guys in the 50s, too. That was, um, uh, I can't remember who actually came up with the idea of the big promise, but it, it fit in with the idea of, of USP, one big idea that people can come across. So what you need to do to come up with that idea is you need to understand your market to the point that you you really understand them. You understand how they feel at the moment they're reading your ad. You understand how they felt when they woke up. You understand how they felt when they went to bed. You truly uh, have sympathy and and you care about them. That said, you want your ad to be the one thing that they read today that gets them excited, gets their heart beating a little faster, gets them thinking, wow, maybe maybe there's an answer to this or maybe this is a product or, wow, this is what I was looking for. So, how do you do that? Some of my headlines have been unbelievable, but to the point that they had to keep reading. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the big famous one is the one-legged, you know, the amazing secrets of a one-legged golfer that will allow you to hit longer tee shots and score lower. I think some, something along that line. But it was the idea of the one-legged golfer. Other, you know, other advertisers, marketers, and even the golf, the uh, editors of the golf magazine where that ad ran laughed at it. They thought, that's stupid, nobody's going to buy this, nobody's going to read this. And it wasn't until the ad had run steadily for, I don't know, five or ten years that they started paying attention to this. And what, what that did is that talked to the needs of the average golfer out there who wasn't being 
taken care of by the average uh, marketer in those magazines um, and what and was being kind of looked down upon even you know by the editors even as the you know most golfers are you know older they're overweight they have a bad back they couldn't break a hundred on a golf course if you you know if their life's dependent on it and yet the magazines kept marketing to them as if they were Tiger Woods. And I came in with an ad that just said, let's have some fun with this. And I'm a, re- you know, we're regular guys and we don't want to, you know, we don't want to shoot scratch golf. We want to just knock a lot of points off our score and we want to have more fun and we want to be able to c- control the game a little better. And it, it just worked like, like magic, but there was a bit of, fun with it and it was a big the, the, the big idea was um a little outrage uh and a little sense that wow maybe this is what i've been looking for all this time how do you uncover all the features and benefits of the product or the service that you're trying to sell that's actually what i do first and i think that's an easy that's a tactic that otherwise have told me when when i told them uh that has helped them do this it's uh, like sitting down and think what do i do now well take the product or the service whatever it is and and start making lists make a big list of all the features of the product and the features are what it does what it weighs um uh, uh what elements are in it uh how how big it is how extensive it is how many pages are in the report whatever the physical nature of the thing are, are the features or the or the uh Things, if, if, say, if it's software, the, the, the virtual uh, uh, physical elements of it, the benefit are what it does for you. And so, what you want to do is make a big list of all the features of the thing. It's, uh, you know, it's it's it it's it's this big. It weighs this much. It's blah blah blah. The benefits are what that means for you. And then once you write these out, the features and benefits, a lot of writers forget to do that. Once you, as you're writing this out, it helps you understand the product. So I do this before I write a headline, before I sit down and even think about how I'm going to try to sell this stuff. So I get a good idea of what these, this product or service consists of mm-hmm. and what those features mean for the, for the consumer or the, or the prospect. And that, and that would be the uh, uh, benefits. Then all of your bullets can be taken from that list. In other words, you, you really can do a standard set of bullets that consist of a feature with a benefit in a sentence framed against the expectations the, uh, of, of, of your reader, the competition that you know is out there, and the belief systems of your reader. So you can be a little outrageous. You can, uh, you can use two benefits or three benefits. So you can say this, this, uh, let's say you're selling an information product on how to buy a used car for cheap. Mm-hmm. So the feature might be, you know, it's, it, this thing has, it, this, uh, uh, information product has interviews with, uh, some of the best car salesman out there and that's the feature what that means for you is that you're going to know exactly what you're going to come across when you walk onto a used car sales lot what they're going to say what they mean by that and how to either counter it or how to translate it to your own needs or how to work through that so these guys spilled the beans on on what they're doing to make you buy and what you can do to bring the price way down and and put them under your control rather than you being under their control etc 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 so so you 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 kind of uh, twist things around and try to make each bullet a story unto itself yet it has to be short no more than two sentences maximum in a bullet and one of those can be in a, in parentheses 
But take good bullets. Go and find ads. Find my ads. Find other people's ads that write good bullets. And, and you never know which bullet is going to trigger the buy response in your uh, prospect. So you want to get everything out there. So you want to try to you want you want to overwrite. You want to write way more bullets than you're going to need. Then start trimming them so that each bullet earns its place in the uh, pitch. But you don't want to cut so many of them out that you, you're covering every single possible question or objection or nagging um, uh, issue in your prospect's mind because the bullets are meant to, to target specifics in the, um, in the presentation of the sales pitch so that something clicks. Often, when I go, I went back and I would talk to people who bought, who had been prospects, seen, seen an ad that I'd written, and they bought, and I talked to them. It was one single bullet that triggered it. They, the credibility building and the rest of the ad and the, the, you know, building up desire and doing all this stuff, that was one part. That got them up on the fence. What knocked them off was like one bullet that addressed a specific need they had, and, and it just, that emotional, uh, trigger, uh, uh, clicks and they go, yep, this is for me and they're going to do it. I've heard you refer to the greased slide. I was wondering what that is and, and how we should use it. Okay, this is something that was actually said to me by a grizzled old ad man back when I first started out, like in my first year of, of fumbling out there and, and trying to, you know, service clients uh, with the best writing possible. And he talked about the grease slide. The grease slide is an image, kind of like the uh, uh, swimming pool image that I used earlier. The image is that <clears throat> at the beginning of your ad, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the reader gets on and he goes down this slide. And by a grease slide, we mean... There's no stops. There's no tangents. There's no, oh, stop and look at the pretty flowers. Oh, there's a bright light stop. It's like a breathless ride from top to the very end. And what you want to do is wake up your, your reader with your advertisement so that he's, he's reading it breathlessly. And it's like one thing and another. And if some, if a phone rings, he's going to, he's, he's going to ignore it. If somebody comes in and talks to him, he's going to hold up his hand and say, Hey, just a minute. And he's finishing this. And this becomes the most important thing in his life because you're solving a problem for him or you're, or you're presenting some, some kind of discovery to him that he didn't even know existed seconds ago. And his life is literally changing. Even if it's a mundane ad about buying nails, say if, if he's if he's got a, a project out in the backyard building a uh, a treehouse for his daughter, and he had to stop because he ran out of nails, and he's not sure what to do because of, uh, it's I don't know it's uh, the the uh, hardware store doesn't carry the nails he needs, and and he's all trouble. And you come up and you show him how he can get the nails delivered tomorrow for cheaper than they would be at the you know for driving down to the uh, hardware store you know whatever. Then you've solved a a problem that wouldn't be a problem for most people. Most people would consider an urgent problem, but it is for him because his daughter's waiting for the treehouse. So so even for mundane stuff, you have to make this the most exciting thing that that happened. And when you get into that, it's like it's like the uh, you know he can't wait to get to the end. When he's at the end, he's a little breathless and might even be sitting there looking at his wallet saying, Wow, did I just buy that? What type of things can typically stop that smooth process? Is there is there anything that can make people stop sliding down that greasy slide? Right. Writing in a non-smooth way. Every sentence, every word has to earn its way into the pitch. And it has to be like a story where there's no, okay, now hold that thought. Let me tell you about blah. No, you can't do that. Everything has to be integrated. So good ads 
they don't necessarily follow formulas, but they, 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 they're integrated. So there's no sudden, uh, jerkiness in there. There's no stopping of it. It's like you start to build desire and you don't let up and you start to, to add things, but you keep them in your mind that you're still got to keep that desire high. You got to keep uh, building a fire and you don't stop and do anything else. If, if you have to go off on a tangent, while you're doing this and, and talk about something else. But first, let me tell you about the history of the, of how software was first created in Silicon Valley. You know, no, if, if it's not part of it, a lot of things that writers throw into ads don't need to be in the ad. They can be put into the product or they can be, they can be explained later. What you're talking about now is that breathless decision to come on board with you, get this product and let's, and, and let's get this thing going. So, um, you know, it's it's a matter of experience. You don't just sit down and suddenly start writing grease slide copy, but you've got to have it on your mind that that's the if there's any point that the reader can say so what, or you bore him if you start writing something, and even in your head you say, oh, this is boring, but I got to get it out there. Probably you don't need to get it out there. Probably you've gone off the rails, and you got to go back. And you know, does that? You know, does talking about the history of the of the business matter at this point? And it probably doesn't. A lot of writers are working for clients who will demand that something gets put in there. You know, most of the writing I did before I found my quote unquote perfect clients, and I actually have been lucky enough to have some a few perfect clients for the last twenty years. Most other clients are going to step all over your writing. They're going to interfere. They're going to have their, you know, their niece who is an English lit major in college look it over and they're going to complain and they're going to push for putting stuff in. You just got to live with it. As a professional, you got to make the choice. You're either going to, you know, you're, you're going to write and then move along. You're going to, you're going to do the best job you can, get paid and then move along. You're going to try to work with these clients, you're, but you know, you do the best job you can. Once it's out of your hands and you've been paid and the client takes it, there's not much you can do about it until you get good clients who are steeped in direct response experience and knowledge, know what's going on, know what a good ad looks like, know what should happen in a good ad. And my best clients, the, the way they got me to work for them for less money actually than I would, than I was asking from other clients is they said, we'll take the leash off. We will run every ad as you write it with zero changes. And we'll take the hit, you know. So said anything unethical. I never made any illegal claims. We ran it by lawyers and stuff. But other than that, they ran it the way I wrote it, which means they were holding their breath. They were thinking, geez, you know, nor, you know, this is, you know, this, this you know, we're going to be embarrassed. You know, this is, this is going to ruin our reputation. All of that stuff run, ran through their head and they knew it was false. All clients think all Good advertising is going to ruin their reputation. It's just the opposite. It's going to build their reputation. So, but you may have to trick, not trick clients. You may have to just develop a relationship with a client where you say, look, you need to run it this way. Your changes are going to kill this ad. And you, it's a learning process as, as you get going. So do you brief them about that up front, John? Well, to a point, I don't take on a, uh, New clients now. I'm. I haven't actually taken on a new client in a couple of years. I will uh, help. I, I will recommend other writers, and then I'll talk to the writer and help them. And the most common thing that I deal with, with even 
you know, writers with 20 years experience and huge success track records. The one thing that comes up all the time is the client wants to screw with the ad. So the client hires a writer because he doesn't know how to write an ad. The, the, he hires a top writer, spends top money, brings in a great writer who delivers a great ad, and then suddenly the client is an expert in advertising. He's going to tell the guy what needs to be done. It's, it's an endless story, and you're never going to get around it. So I have something that I make sure all writers who have uh, mentored under me memorize, which is all clients suck. <laughs> but that just means that they're going to step all over it. Now, the, the caveat to that is when you write for yourself – you then become the client and you will suck. So writing for yourself is very tough for your own products, for your own uh, gain. Uh, a lot of writers think, well, I've made so much money for these clients. I'm going to create my own product and I'm going to write for it. They're going to find that's the toughest ad they've ever written because, you know, the stuff they tried to get the other client to do, they're going to have the same fears. What about my reputation? You know, should I really run this? And it's, it's, it's humorous, but the top writers just kind of nod and say, this is part of the complex uh, human uh, brain games that we play with ourselves consciously. The battle between the id and the superego and the, uh, the, you know, the, our fight or flight responses and uh, all the psychology that comes with having one foot still in the jungle and one foot in the concrete jungle we've created in modern society. All this stuff comes into play and the more you understand it, the more experience you have with overcoming it, the better salesman you're going to be. How do you develop your voice and the story within the copy? That's really easy. The, the story part's more complex. That's, in fact, you, if you go to my blog, john-carlton.com, I have eh, dozens of uh, posts in there over the last seven years on storytelling. And I go deep into storytelling and, and, and what it's all about. It's a very important thing. We are hardwired, we are hardwired for storytelling because before writing, that's how we passed along, uh, you know, all the base knowledge that we had was, was verbally. We put them in the stories for the mnemonic, you know, memorization process. And so we like stories, but Today, most people can't tell a good story to, to save their lives. They, they, they stumble. They don't have a good idea of what story structure is about. So there's ways to study story. You can learn a lot from the guys who do fiction, but not too much. But you will naturally start to tell stories as you go along. But the voice is more important. The voice just happens as a matter of writing. Writers write. If you're not writing every day and feeling – if you are denied the ability to write one day and you don't feel a loss, then you're not – probably don't have a lot of writer's blood in, in, in your veins. Mm -hmm. uh, so writers write and they keep writing and they look for their own voice. You're going to go through copying other people's voices unconsciously. You're going to keep going. At some point, it's just going to click. And I can't predict it. It took me 20 years to find my own voice. I, I had a pretty good set of voices that I would use, but I would, I would, uh, like I would take the client. So I, I knew how to, you know, find the client's voice and then put that into an ad. But my own voice from my own stuff didn't happen until I was writing, uh, regularly for myself and I, I kind of clicked. So you have to understand that voice means that when somebody's reading your stuff or listening to it in a video sales letter or, or you know, in, in person, that it blends into their, their head. It's, you write like you would talk if you could edit 
after you said something. When we talk, we tend to use ums, ahs, we go in, in linguistic uh, curly cues. And if you can go back and edit that, just take out the ums and the ahs and fix any of the grammatical problems that you had and all the false starts, then what you come up with is a nice, tidy, great communication uh, heavy piece piece of writing. So the best writers in fiction and in advertising and in everything else come close to a a kind of a, a, a kind of a just you and me sitting down and having a little chat, and I'm telling a riveting story. So it, it's it, the best kind of writing is very much like you would talk. John, should we be trying to go for the single step or the multi step sell? And especially if we're a newbie at copywriting. Is the multi-step sale easier than trying to get people to spend their money in one go? What would you advise? Yeah, I, I thought you were going to say the exact opposite. I, I thought you were going to say that for a newbie, a single step might be better. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, it, it doesn't much matter. Multi-step sales are a long-form sales letter taken into pieces. Mm-hmm. So what, what you do, especially online, uh, you pr- probably a good way to think about it is every single – page in a site or in the process wants to do one thing, not a whole bunch of things. So if you want to get a name capture page, if you want to get around you know, all, all the problems with you know, Google not liking name capture pages, but you want to do that, you can have one sales path where you're, getting, you're giving away some information and at some point it's kind of tailored to an optional box there that says, hey, if you'd like to get more information, just sign up here and we'll send it to you and blah, blah, blah. Then the emails that go out or other steps of the process leading them through becoming a, you know, becoming a regular reader of your emails and then buying the stuff that you want and then buying the back end and doing things like that. So the, the, the sales process um, is multi-step anyway. So even even in a, a single thing, but remember, you only want to ask the person to do one thing. Don't try to get into a situation where you've got one sales page, either online or or you're delivering it verbally over the phone, or you're doing anything where you're giving them multiple choices. Try to limit the choices to one. You either want this or you don't. Here here's the deal. Click this. Uh, fill this out. You know. Uh, and, and 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 move along. But don't get caught up in the idea that. A multi-step sale is going to be easier than a than a uh, single step, or vice versa. It depends on the per- perceived needs of the prospect, how much you're actually answering the dire dilemmas or the trauma that your prospect is in. The higher the level of, of trauma, and the more targeted you are, the easier it is to make a direct sale. So a person who absolutely needs this information, he knows it's rare, it's going to be hard to get, excuse me, this uh, uh, information or whatever it is you're selling. It could be a service, it could be uh, a physical product. Then the more that you make the case that this is the, a, a great bargain, uh, it's, even, even if it's more expensive than a competition, this is something he needs to get into now. Then the more you can make that that single presentation. I mean, I've sold stuff from a, a, an email with four paragraphs of writing, and I've also sold things with you know twenty page, uh, essentially twenty page manuscript letters. And the average video sales letter now, assuming that one minute of voice vi- uh, over video is essentially one manuscript page, those things go to. 21 to 27 minutes, uh, I think, are, are what the uh, 
uh, ClickBank, the uh, high-selling uh, video sales letters are doing. So that's a 21-page letter, 27-page letter. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of writing, and they're going for one thing, one sale. So that's it's it's good to think about this, but there is no good good answer to it. Is price a factor in this, John, at all? Is, is there some cases where the product that we're selling is quite low price, so there's no point in doing a multi-step sale, just go for the single step, try to get the sale straight away? Well, you know, there's old school salesmanship and there's uh, the new school. The new school is online. You're not paying for the publication at all. So you're not really paying for email. So uh, marketers have both taken advantage of it and abused it. So they will, you know, write 30-page uh, websites, you know, selling a $39 product. And so so that, that gets into the salesmanship thing. How – Adept are you at making the sale? So the, when, when people ask me how long should an ad be or a sales letter, especially online where there's no limit, you could have a thousand page ad, you know, and, and I've actually had uh, colleagues who have done that through these manifestos and stuff. The way you determine how long an ad should be is that you figure out what you need to say to another human being to get them interested, to heighten that interest into a burning desire to get them to take out their wallet and spend money. How many points you need to make, how long do you need to type that out, uh, yeah, again, whether, whether it's, a, it's a voice delivery or a written delivery. And then so you start with uh, the introduction, move through credibility, move through your, your features and benefits, move through all the ways it's going to improve their life, and then move to the, the pitch where you're actually trying to close the sale. And then look back and say, how long did it take me to do that? How many pages did it take? And that should be your ad. So a good writer gets it down. You know, I used to, with, in old school, we were limited by, you know, a publication, a one-page publication couldn't be bigger than the amount of type you could fit on a single page. So you were limited in space. Uh, mailing, in direct mail, you were limited by the weight of the envelope. The heavier the envelope got with the more pages, the more postage you would spend, and your cost would skyrocket and probably sink the project. So you wouldn't have an eight-page letter with a few attendant things. Uh, you wanted a one-page um, uh, ad in a uh, magazine would be about two to four pages of uh, manuscript copy. Uh, depending on how many photos you had in there, things like that. So you were limited. So us old school guys had more training in being pithy and getting a complex pitch down to its essential core so that you couldn't – the way I used to test my ads and my headlines is you couldn't take a single word out of a single sentence or, or a headline without changing the meaning, which meant that it was down to its fundamental core. It was absolutely as stripped down as it could be. And then however long that was, that's how long the ad was. For anyone who's listening to this and thinking, wow, this sounds like something that I could do for a living, what kind of money can a top copywriter like yourself charge? Well, that, you know, that's a complex question. It depends on the market. It depends on a lot of things. But if you go to a client who is selling who knows he's only getting a fraction of the sales he should be getting. Nobody's he's leaving money on the table. And you're going to come up with an ad that's going to beat everything else he had, and you're going to double, quadruple, times 10 his, his current income, then what's that worth to the client? Now, a lot of clients want to treat writers like vendors. They don't want to pay them a lot of money. They just want to get the damn ad written, and they think there's magic in the ad because they don't understand the process. The top marketers, if you're writing for for uh, good clients, will understand that they're 
their life and breath depends on the quality of the ad. So they're going to want to go with top writers. So a lot of writers work off of royalty basis because they know that when it's, it's like a percentage of the gross, they essentially become partners in that project, financial partners, not, not contractual partners. Uh, they don't, they don't have anything else to do with the delivery or anything else, but they become partners in that. They make the ad as strong as they can, and sometimes they'll defer payment. So a lot of top writers get paid zero for a bomb, for an ad that bombs, but mm-hmm. they'll pay you know, mid-six figures or more for an ad that, that hits. And the client will write that check happily because for every dollar he's paying the, the client, he's putting 10 in his pocket. And he knows that the magic happened with the ad. The, the trick is you pull that ad. You put up any other ad by any other writer, it's not going to work. You know, it's like how much is an ad worth to a client? Clients said no, no, it's worth a lot. So that said, a lot of writers out there are working for five grand a pop. A lot of top writers are working for fifteen to a hundred grand for a project, depending on how much goes in there. Mm-hmm. And some writers are really worth a hundred grand for a single email. I don't think there's anybody getting that right now, but they're worth it if they can make it work. Um, it's all over the map. As a rookie writer, put your big glasses down. Stop thinking about how much you're going to make at the end and start making whatever you can make. I actually recommend um, aspiring copywriters to you know read up, but get experiences you can and take on every single job out there you can. Write the menu for your brother-in-law's. Uh, store, write ads for free, write the ad for your niece's lemonade stand, write, um, help, help your uncle write a letter to the editor of the local newspaper, uh, write ads, you know, for everything and write them for free if you have to, write them for five bucks, write them for a free meal, just write, get out there, learn how to deal with clients, learn what they'll do with your ad no matter how good it is, learn how to write so that the client's eyes light up and it actually works. Learn how to write to meet a deadline. Learn, start learning these processes. I call it being a shameless whore. You, you're, you're taking every single job you can, but you don't take on jobs that are over your head. So don't take on a corporate job that you can't, that you aren't confident you can fulfill yet. Get your feet wet. Start at the shallow end of the pool. There's no shame in that. So as far as charging, you know, for writers, and, and not even you don't even need to be a top writer to make a good living as a writer because you supply the meat to the business world. Without advertising, businesses shrivel and die. With good ads by someone who knows how to write an ad, they will thrive beyond their their expectations. So you are the engine of capitalism. You're what makes a business work or not work. So you have to you have to put that in. That said, a lot of writers out there are getting 5K for a project. The good writers get 10, 20K, and then when you get above that, you get into those, you know, those superstar writers where they're making vast amounts of money. The last time I took on a new client, I charged $30,000 just to get my interest and 5% of gross uh, in perpetuity um, to, to, to be able to close the deal. And I've got, you know, I just, I just cashed a check yesterday for an ad I wrote 15 years ago. Wow. Okay. Cool. 
So if you can get good at the craft and you can get results, the money you can earn is, is really good basically. So John, thank you so much for doing this interview with me. Where can we get more of your content and information? Well, go to the blog. That's my main page to the world. Everything on there is free. I've got seven years of archives. I write generally one to two very long, involved, uh, advice-giving articles um, of a month. Uh, so there's just massive archives in there. And I've got, if you feel like buying stuff, I've got stuff for sale. Great. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. John, a massive thanks to you for coming on the show. Joey, they were great questions. I really had a good time. Thanks. The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.